Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is going to be fun because I love when you can tie history and policy together into a current event and a current problem. We're going to do that right now. Uh, Neetu Arnold is joining us, another of our great young voices contributors. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for the time today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited about talking about this subject. I am too. She's a senior research associate at the National Association of Scholars. That needs an acronym. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, and she's the author of Priced Out, What College Costs in America. But we're going to talk a little policy here. Uh, you're in the Wall Street Journal. Great get. Congratulations. Still haven't heard back from them yet. <laughs> I'm available. Uh, the title alone gets my attention on this. A Cold War program gets hijacked. We're going to talk about the National Resource Centers. Let's start big picture before we zoom in on the National Resource Centers, though. This is not a new phenomenon where we have Cold War programs, Cold War policies, frankly, Cold War thinking that has zombified and still lurches forward today, along with some government funding and the bureaucracy that comes with it, is it? No, not at all. And I think this is a perfect example of a program that was conceived under an emergency that has outlived its purpose. And again, with the National Resource Centers, they were founded uh, as a Cold War emergency. Uh, this was in the height uh, of the Cold War. Uh, Sputnik was launched by Russia or the Soviet Union, actually. And uh, at the time, Americans did not have a sufficient language, knowledge or science or mathematics at the time. And so there was a lot of interest from the government to educate Americans in foreign languages, in math, in science. And so that's how this program came to be. And so it was really about develop, uh, specifically for the National Resource Centers, it was about developing language knowledge and expertise on different areas of the world. So, so far, what I've said here doesn't sound very problematic. It doesn't sound controversial, but over the years, uh, there's been a mission drift for these centers. And what I documented in the Wall Street Journal piece was that a lot of these centers are now focusing on issues that are either unrelated to national security or uh, the topics are not that important and, in fact, sometimes malicious. Yeah, Netu Arnold joining us. Uh, you know, it hits me, staying big picture for just a second before we get into the specifics of the NRC, Everything you just said, you could swap out the Soviet Union and say China, because we've been discussing over and over again. It's like, well, China is so far ahead of us on the intellectual and academic front. They're putting out and you can pick whichever number you believe. So many more, you know, scientists and so many more of the higher ed people than we are. So on the surface, this is not a problem that has gone away. 
But that's not what these things are actually doing. And it sounds good. Hey, we need to have more knowledge of the rest of the world. Absolutely. We need to have a strong academic core to pull things like government researchers, things like government diplomats. The, the concept is good. Where did the concept lose track of what's going on in the real world, especially as the world changed from the Cold War to the war on terror era to now where we have real world things like the Chinese where they're an adversary? Right. So I really think the mission started to change after the Cold War ended. And this was a problem that many of the scholars working at these centers uh, realized that once the Cold War ended, the mission of the centers also ended and there was concern that many of these centers would close. And so in the 90s, the early 2000s, uh, there was discussions of rebranding the centers to focus more on, quote, international education. Again, they thought that maybe people could learn more about the world. And there's not an issue with necessarily learning about different cultures or different uh, different customs. But its connection to national security is a, a little bit fuzzy. And this was the way to continue the importance of the program. And then, of course, after 9-11, there was increased interest, especially in Middle East National Resource Centers. And uh, so, again, more government funding was pushed to those uh, to those centers specifically. But again, there are so many people before me who have documented the bias of these centers and uh, after after the 2000s, funding got cut to many of these national resource centers. But again, we've never really gotten rid of the funding. And my argument is that, well, it's time it's time to cut federal funding for these centers. Yeah, me too, Arnold. Before we get into the problems, if it was a perfect thing that ran perfectly, which we know there's no such thing, especially when a government <laughs> bureaucracy gets involved, what should they look like if they were functioning properly? Because, it, it, you know, it's kind of like counterfeit money. You know, the banks don't teach people with counterfeit money. They show them the real money so they know what the counterfeit looks like. What should the real thing that works properly look like so that we know what these problems look like when we delve into them here in a minute? I mean, I think they should just teach languages and they should focus on uh, issues like uh, security relevant issues to these areas with devoid from ideological activism. And that's what I really document, that that's what they're doing now, that many of these centers are promoting ideological activism, primarily uh, progressive or left-wing ideology. So there isn't even a balance. Um, so that that's what I would say. It, it needs to it, it needs to not be focused on ideological activism. Yeah, but this is the reason it's going to have the ideology in it. Let's be honest here. This is going to be a, a role, the jobs that staff these things. This is going to be very academically heavy. The academic institutions are already leaning to the left for the most part. This is going to be bureaucracy heavy. We know the people in the bureaucracy lean to the left quite a bit. It seems like an inherently built-in problem because, look, we, we talk about the system and the bureaucracy. Well, the bureaucracy is people. And when you're drawing from that pool of people, just demographically, I'm not even knocking it, just math-wise, that's probably what you're going to get for the most part, right? Well, I don't think so, actually. I think uh, the centers back back during the Cold War, during that time, I think there was a lot more objectivity involved in many of the people in the centers. Even if they had one particular view, they were able to teach these subjects without inculcating their own ideology. So I think it is possible, but we've clearly devolved from that. So in the context of today, I would say it's becoming a lot harder. 
Why is that? So if if it changed, was there a single? Now, obviously, the Cold War ended, so that was a major change. But, you know, that was well, we're pushing 40 years on that now. What changed then that this has become more ideologically, you know, to the left? Why did that change? Did the people change? Was it the circumstances changing? Was it a change in the funding system? What did it? Right. So I think some of it has to do with the people themselves and uh, the normalization of including activism and left wing ideologies in the coursework. And I think um, part of the reason is because of the new left movement, which was pretty which uh pretty much rose uh, throughout the 60s and 70s. And it many of those people were in college at the time, but now they're adults and they're in these teaching positions. So I would say that's one place for why this activism became involved with, or melded with education. Um, I think there's also just more of a focus on um, oppressor versus oppressed. Um, you know, those ideologies that have uh, inculcated. And I think some of it also has to do with uh, the funding. So at least for Middle East studies, what I can say is that they started to get more funding from, this is for certain centers. So this is not for all national resource centers, but for a center at Georgetown, for example, they were looking to uh, foreign funders like those in Saudi Arabia, Oman, many of the other Gulf states. And uh, they have specific interests. So I would say some of that would affect uh, at least what the ten- centers would teach. Though I would say nowadays, the countries don't necessarily need to tell the centers how to teach these subjects or what views to promote because the faculty will do it on their own. Yeah, me too, Arnold, joining us. Let's look at it this way, too. We're talking about ideologies here. Going back to what the core point of this was supposed to be, I think there's a danger. Look, I have no problem that we hash out different ideologies in an academic setting. I have no problem that we hash out ideologies in a political and cultural setting. We need to. That's how our system is growing up. That's how growth. We should be debating this stuff out. I do think there's a problem, though, because what happens here is, let's be honest, we're Americans. We get a little myopic and tunnel vision. We tend to see everything through our American filter. And some of these things, some of these ideologies, some of these culture type issues, they don't apply when you start talking overseas and they don't apply when you talk to other countries because other countries' struggles aren't the same as ours. Their cultural struggles aren't the same as ours. This seems to be when you start trying to just apply the cultural issues of the moment, which is what happens when the ideology shifts to these, which is supposed to be something to boister how we see the rest of the world. That seems like two incongruent things to me at this point in time, the way it's being used now. Absolutely. And I think there's a big misunderstanding of what other people from different parts of the world view different issues and how I don't even want to say how we view it because I don't think it's everybody in America. I think there are many people in this country who would disagree with the way the academic establishment has gone about these issues. And I thought a good example of what I saw here, this disconnect, uh, was when 
Stanford University's Latin American Center, which again is supported through federal funds, it receives federal funds, um, decided to host a webinar on how we could use picture books to promote LGBT advocacy for Latinx, Latinx, Latinx. And I read that and I thought that was a bit out of touch because even most Hispanics do not agree with the terminology of Latinx. And again, I'm not really sure what that topic has to do with American national security. So I, I would say that's an example where the academic establishment is out of touch with not only everyday Americans, but a lot of people from other countries. Yeah, need to Arnold joining us. There's two things that you point out in your piece um, that have changed dramatically that you use to bolster your argument here. I'm going to take them in turn. One you you talk explicitly about. The other one's kind of hinted at, but I want to flesh it out a little bit. The first big change from 1958 is a pretty obvious one because it's how we're talking right now. We have this thing called the Internet now. Yes. Um, 1950s, you know, everything's still in books. Encyclopedias is the big thing. Very different environment, very different cultural environment, very different communication environment. The world is way more integrated. Uh, people's knowledge of the world is way more integrated. That's something that hasn't been updated in the way the NRC sees their primary mission, is it? I agree with that. And that's why I say that we're not limited to just the physical classroom or these national resource centers anymore. Uh, I think the internet, uh, love it or hate it, uh, it's it's been a way to connect people. And uh, people who want to learn about different cultures could go, easily go on YouTube and watch some YouTubers. And I, I, I get that the criticism might be, well, there could be disinformation. How do you know what's true and what's not? And I think we have to have a little bit more faith in people that they can evaluate what's true and what isn't. You go on YouTube, if something is false, people in the comments will easily let you know. And I, I think it, it can be a good platform to see other cultures as they are, like in their actual environment, free from the political correctness of the universities. Uh, it, it can allow people to make their own choices, make their make their own, uh, or come to their own opinions about the way the world works. Yeah, Nate Arnold joining us. The other one, and you kind of hinted and talked about a little bit, but I want to really bring it out here is, we, the American people, have changed. We just had the new census data come out. Not only is um, what would previously be considered minority groups growing, the nation is diversifying very, very rapidly. And part of that diversification is, and you mentioned it in your piece, we have more at least bilingual, if not multi-language speakers than we've ever had before. You mentioned a couple of other places, uh, the Education Department's Language Resource Center. The Pentagon's uh, Defense Language Institute is considered an elite institution for decades. It's, they're very good at what they do. It seems to me that there should be some recruiting of them. This could also fall into a, you know, where we talk about the visa situation, where we get some of these folks into our country that are that can do these sorts of things. There seems to be multiple ways to address this, especially with a diversifying country, like of a better term. We can do some of this in-house now, can't we? Yes. And again, I want to bring up some numbers here just to provide more context. So we do have more bilingual speakers in this country than ever before. In 2018, 67 million people were speaking a second language at home. 
some of these languages were Hindi, Chinese, Arabic, which are all languages deemed critical by the Department of State. Uh, so I want to bring this up again. 2018, 67 million bilingual speakers. Uh, this is compared to 2000, where we had 47 million bilingual speakers. So 20 million increase. Uh, I think we could draw upon these individuals. You know, I think of people like my parents who are uh, native or they, they have native fluency in Hindi. And if you paid them enough to work in these positions, especially during dire times, uh, there would be many people in my community and other uh, bilingual speaking communities who I think would easily take that job. So it's just about paying them enough and uh, the, the incentive structures should be there, but we're not in this dire situation of the 1950s where we don't have the internet, we don't have that many bilingual speakers acro across the spectrum of the various languages that exist. Uh, we have a lot of options nowadays. So it, I, I think the National Resource Centers, they really rely on the narrative that if we got rid of these centers, if we got rid of the funding for them, that we would be thrown into this knowledge crisis, which I, I don't think that would be the case. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. So as usual, when you're dealing with a government program or a government institution that this is, you're dealing with funding and you're dealing with power structures because people don't want to give up their little hamlet of power, right? I don't want to put anybody out of a job. That's not what I'm saying. It seems like there's some redundancies in these centers. Like we said, there's some other things we could step up. There's other things that overlap and can take the burden on them. You know, it's easy to just say, let's eliminate something because, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do all the red tape and you don't have to write all the law, right? But if you're going to eliminate it, this does seem like a program that can be absorbed into other parts of government, either by expanding other parts of government, expanding where it already overlaps. This doesn't seem like this would be a giant gaping hole if we got rid of it. This seems like something that just needs to evolve to the natural next level to me. It, I think it's realistic to assume that we could cut funding or even eliminate the funding for national resource centers, and that's because we've already done it before. In 2010 or 2010 or 2011, uh, there were major cuts to uh, Title VI funds, which is some of the funds for the national resource centers. Uh, I believe it was a 40% cut, which is major for federal programs. And my view is that if we could do it once, we could definitely do it again. And as you say, there are redundancies here. So again, either we cut the funding or some some of those funds could just go to other departments, but there is no reason to have these redundant institutions, especially when 
they are not teaching things that are relevant to national security. Yeah, need to Arnold joining us. Uh, let's go back to big picture where we started after going through, you know, policy stuff and, and bureaucracies. You got to wait through a little mess to get through and people's out. Let's go back big picture for a second, because I think it's a fair criticism that the worldwide literacy of the average American is probably not where it should be. As far as, you know, our place in the world, how the rest of the globe does things, how other cultures do things. I think that's a fair criticism. I am an American. I love my country, but I've also lived overseas. So I've got to see it from that side looking back in. I think that's a fair problem. What would be a good way to address this, not just bureaucracy-wise, because that's always going to get took over and you get mission creep like you talk. Culturally, the way we deal with our social media, the way we deal with intaking information. We already talked about it. We have the internet. We can look up anything at any time instead of just you know doing cat pictures and yelling at DC. What's some things that the average person can do on their own to raise their worldwide literacy, for lack of a better way to put it, which is actually the core value of what this was doing in the 50s was, hey, we as a country need to pay better attention to our place in the world. What can we do individually to just go ahead and do that on our own now? I mean, I would say, you know, maybe this is just my view on this from the people I've spoken with. I actually think they know quite a bit about the world. And there's a lot less understanding of the way things work here in America, whether that be the way our government works. Uh, you know, for example, I work on student loans, uh, the, the issue of student loans. And there are many people who don't realize that uh, federally backed student loans, that's that's paid by the taxpayers, uh, that, that connection isn't clear. And there's a lot of lack of understanding even about our own history in this country. Um, whereas I see a lot of people and they seem to know something about another place or the food of another culture, because we have a lot of that here in America. So I, I do think some of this just starts from, uh, you know, in K through 12 education, having uh, uh, better reading education. Part of learning about other regions in the world requires knowing how to read and be because you can read a lot of these things in books on the internet, uh, watching YouTube videos. I think YouTube is a great tool for this where people talk about their experiences traveling to other parts of the world and even people from other parts of the world will comment about their experiences. So I, I do think it's about having a stronger K through 12 education system and uh, just more reading. Yeah. And I think this is, uh, this is one of those things where we bash the internet and we talk about all the kids are always online and stuff. I look, my two youngest are teenagers right now. I'm telling you, they're way smarter than I was and they know more and they, and yes, there's a lot of silly on TikTok, but there's also stuff on there that piques their interest and they go look it up and dig into it further cultural stuff. So I think this is partially a cultural change that, um, and our government is always slow to adapt to cultural change, but yeah, the generation coming up next, you know, my kids generation, they got no problem. If you tell them something, they go look it up and fact check you on the spot. So I think some of yeah. that might be coming. Um, just to put a cap on this, you wrote about the national resource and we're going to put the piece up in the links, wall street journal, read the whole thing for yourself. She also has quite a few links in there that you need to click through a lot of data on there, read it, make up your own mind. Like we already said, which would be the fix with this? Would this be a administrative fix with the bureaucracy? Would there be, need to be a piece of legislation? Um, if we were going to pare down and or eliminate this and or fold it into other programs and somehow do it that way, what's the remedy here? Is it administrative? Is it legislative? What do you think? I think it's more legislative. Uh, I, that's what's been done previously. So I would think that's where the change would need to be. Uh, obviously, in the shorter term, if 
we can't just eliminate federal funding for national resource centers, then the Department of Education should strip funding from centers, so individual centers that are not meeting the national security needs. They are either distracted, they are presenting, they're, they're misusing funds for topics that are not even related to national security. That is something the Department of Education could do. Me too, Arnold. Uh, I love these topics because there's so many of these programs like this that they kind of outrun their their original program and they just keep going and going. It's the old uh, Reagan line about the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Here we got one of them. Could be useful, needs to be looked at and dealt with. We appreciate it when you bring things like this to our attention. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. Enjoyed talking to you. Until we get you back on Hertel again, though, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you're doing, what you're writing, and how they can follow you. Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, to follow my work, you can either visit the National Association of Scholars website, which is www.nis.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold. Yep. And we'll link to all that. Make sure you follow her on the Twitter and keep up with all her writing and works. Need to Arnold. I really enjoyed this. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for the time today, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.